to New Books in South Asian Studies, hosted by Dhara and Yarya out of Bombay, India. Pretty much every kid in these parts aspires to the tag of CA, and that's not a new development, as Professor Chris Paulos very convincingly demonstrates in his book, Accountancy and Empire. British chartered accountants went wherever the empire did, and in lots of places there were native accounting systems as well. In time, local accounting bodies developed and set down the rules for becoming a CA, often along the lines of the British model, or borrowed from models extant in other parts of the empire and commonwealth. Clearly, none of this was achieved without a lot of wrangling as to just how much training was needed before one could claim the coveted tag of CA. And even then, the debate raged on as to whether some kinds of CAs were better than other kinds. This is thus a book that takes us behind the balance sheet and offers a sneak peek into the inner workings of one of the most exclusive professional qualifications in the world. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Tara. Um, thank you very much for doing this interview for the New Books Network. It's a fascinating book and I don't think I've ever come across anything like this before, you know, accountancy and empire. I mean, they're normally just put into, you know, two separate compartments of scholarships. <laughs> uh, well, uh, thank you for having me and uh, doing the interview, Dara, and I'm glad you found the book uh, interesting. It's been a, a long time uh, in the making. Mm-hmm. Um, so, could you tell us something about how you came to develop an interest in this topic? Because I understand you are an academic at business school. Uh, yeah, yes, I, I've been in um, uh, an accounting academic for uh, many years ago. But I uh, commenced a, um, uh, a PhD project um, late 80s, early 90s, and um, it ended up being uh, a historical um, piece of work. And um, the um, the places where I have taught uh, as an accounting academic have always had a historical bent, so that came easily to me. And the uh, the topic that I ended up um, uh, studying was how Australia ended up with chartered accountants. Um, the um, in my kind of experience, there's always been two main professional bodies of accountants in Australia and the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Australia is is one and it's uh, generally tended to pride itself as being the the elite body of accountants in the country, although of course that's contested by the others. Um, But uh, that, trying to understand how that happened had me digging through archives around Australia, both government archives but also archives of professional bodies and I ended up in, um, in Britain as well um, at the uh, public record office there uh, uh, digging around at Kew and Chancery Lane and I also travelled across Canada um, finding materials from um, government archives there both provincial and federal and um, what, what I realised without particularly expecting this when I started was that um, deeply implicated in the whole exercise were diplomatic and economic relations between Australia and um, and Britain, uh, 
And uh, when I started on the PhD project, I had kind of fairly narrow blinkers in the sense that I was mostly uh, trying to unravel, you know, the, the tortuous relations between um, Australia as a sort of um, um, fairly independent um, uh, Anglo settler colony and, and Britain. Uh, and I, I was always dimly aware that um, there was a Canadian story and a New Zealand story and an Indian story. Uh, but I tried to kind of shut those out while I was working on the PhD. But uh, when I finished the PhD and, and, and sort of started to dig uh, in more areas, um, in, in Canada, for example, South Africa, um, I realised that it wasn't just a, a, a story of relations between Britain and, and Australia, it was a whole empire-wide story and it didn't just encompass um, the settler colonies such as uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. It also it, it encompassed countries in the Caribbean, in Africa, in uh, Asia broadly defined, you know, including, including India and that there was a kind of... Um, uh, a network of um, of um, players, both in government and in, in the accounting profession, and that they, they talked to each other and squabbled and fought and cooperated um, across great distances and over a very long period of time. And um, while I was gradually um, realising this point, um, a bunch of academics from uh, from Canada, um, uh, just looking at the countries in this book, um, if we're talking about India, Sri Lanka, uh, Jamaica, Kenya, Trinidad and, Trinidad and Tobago, etc., etc., Malaysia, um, a bunch of other academics were also starting to get interested in in how accounting was uh, as a as a as a profession, as an organised occupation was being uh, or had been established in their countries and there was a strong empire link in those countries as well. So um, I was fortunate in, in, in sort of being able to network with those, um, with, with uh, academic colleagues from those countries or with an interest in those countries and um, uh, a colleague uh, uh, from, uh, from UK, uh, Dr. Suki Sian, who had a connection to Kenya and had written about Kenya. Um, I, I met her in a study leave in, uh, in the UK in 2006 and she said, you know, why don't we get this team of people together and try and put something together into a book and get all the, um, you know, the, the, the experts in, in, in the um, empire arena of accountancy, uh, and accountancy politics at least, uh, to kind of uh, get together form a bit of a team, start talking to each other and um, we'll, we'll pull their ideas together into a book and try and give us some kind of a coverage that extended beyond just um, uh, the settler colonies and just you know the, the Western Hemisphere but also encompassed uh, Africa, Asia, Southeast Asia you know, and um, the Caribbean, uh, so which would try to get not not a universal set of of of, of, of colonies, but a pretty large group, and um, 
and, and to see what, what experiences they had that were common and what experiences that they had that differed and trying to unravel, you know, why was the experience of um, organising the accounting profession in, in the Caribbean different from, uh, from Africa and different from, say, uh, Canada and Australia. So that's what we've tried to do in this in this book, and we've we've tried to uh, develop a volume that that that's draws on um, the the vast literature on the British Empire. So it's not a narrow accounting exercise. It it actually tries to um, locate itself in in the broader historical literature on the empire, um, but it, it also. Um, there's, well, you know, there, there's something different about how accounting is organised that can't be, you know, easily read off from just studying flows of capital, for example. Um, and um, there are also flows of people and flows of ideas uh, that one also has to take account of, and also just the specifics of how an occupation, you know, is turned into uh, a professional occupation. I, I always joke with my students that. Uh, why is it that in Australia and some other countries, if you're an electrician or a plumber, uh, you're regarded as being in a trade, but if you're a lawyer or a doctor or, or an accountant, you know, you, um, uh, you're more likely to be classified or, or, and want to regard yourself as a professional rather than a, 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 a someone in a trade. So in that sort of... Um, Simple. I'm not sure if it is so simple, but in that distinction, which sort of seems, you know, obvious to some of us, uh, it turns out that there's a, a century of politicking uh, required to uh, to turn accountants into a professional occupation rather than a trade. So, and, and, and there are, you know, particular angles to that to that uh, process uh, when, say, in Australia or, or Kenya or um, Canada or, or uh, Jamaica, you know, you are you are in a country that has a strong link with with Britain. Yeah. So yeah. So the, the, what we tried to do in the book, I, I think, is to get together a, uh, a team of people that can talk with some some knowledge about about the process, uh, professionalisation process in in their countries, if you like. And um, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's actually very interesting because, you know, when you talk to accountants, I mean, the impression that you always get, I mean, that accountants, you know, it's something very standalone, it's insular, it's isolated from larger social political currents because, you know, they often have this maxim that it's just that the book should balance at the end of the day. Uh, yes, well, there, there, there's always been that sort of technical aspect to, uh, to accounting and, um, you know, one, one can learn how to do double entry bookkeeping and to follow certain accounting rules and accounting standards as an accountant you know whether whether one is in uh, you know in britain or, or canada or india or malaysia and uh, one can learn the technique and practice the technique and engage in technical debates about whether this method is better than that method without without discussing the politics if you like the accountancy politics and without Thinking too hard about how accountants fit into the social social structure of particular countries, um, but uh, I, I guess our book comes from uh, a different movement in accounting academia, which says that you know you can't uh, 
understand what's going on in accounting without understanding where accountants sort of fit into the broader political framework of of, of, of a country, you know, whether it's uh, a country that's part or, or was part of an empire or, or not. So, you know, even in Britain, you know, um, my colleagues in the UK would, would argue that, you know, what one needs to understand um, uh, the economic history and the social history and the political history of, of Britain and locate accountants within that history to uh, understand um, the, the prestige and, and the influence of accountants. And you can't read off that kind of thing just by studying the technique on, on its own. So that's kind of where you know where our group is is coming from as as an intellectual as part of an intellectual movement within accounting academia. Yeah, because I mean I grew up in Western India, well obviously, and there's a very strong trading community. I mean, their interest in accountancy looks like every kid around here aspires to be a chartered accountant. I mean, my father is one. It's the the logic is that. They want to do this thing not because it connects them, you know, to the larger system of global accountancy or something, but they have their roots in trade and bookkeeping and things. So I think it's one way for them to take that traditionally acquired skills, you know, and like give them a more modern, a more professional cast. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, that's very interesting. I did realize your, your, your father was a chartered, or is a chartered accountant. He is a chartered uh, accountant, yes. Ah, uh, well, I, I suppose it's... He's proud of the fact that he's a chartered accountant rather than some other kind of accountant. Uh, as, as, as you would know, if you've even scanned the book, um, accountants uh, tend to be very um, sort of status conscious, of, you know, about who's at the top and who's the next level and so on. And um, that's certainly the case in, in, uh, in, in, in Scotland, where chartered accountancy started, but also in the UK and and everywhere where, where British capital, you know, has flowed, you know, that, that, that the sense of a pecking order is always there and, you know, one can quibble about whether this, this is a particularly, you know, Anglo-American or Anglo-type type, uh, tendency or whether it would occur in any case, you know, whether or not there was an empire connection. Uh, but I, I, I think um, part of the point of, of, of uh, the work in, in the... Um, in, in, in the book is to show that the particular uh, hierarchies, professional hierarchies in the various parts of the uh, empire that we looked at, that partly they, they kind of involve the transfer of uh, the British status hierarchy in accounting to uh, other parts of the world. Not in exactly the same form, but in, um, in, in uh, there are definite connections there about, you know, the whether the you know the upper strata of accountants in Australia or, or India or Malaysia call themselves chartered accountants or not, there's um, you know there is a kind of a uh, an edgy aspect of, of that where you know nobody likes to be second best or nobody likes to lose a job because they're not a chartered accountant if you like. So that's a live issue you know um, you know to to this day and and. In, in the current um, global accounting environment, there, there's a movement towards having uh, international accounting standards, but yeah. also, yeah, or, you know, uh, and more recently, there, there's attempts to have um, a um, international system of accounting education and training and credentials. Uh, so uh, our, 
our book sort of tries to argue that if you want to understand that, that process of how we get an international accountant, part, part of the um, understanding that you can get is, is through history and part of the understanding you get through history is that in, um, in many parts of the world, the, um, the connection to, um, to the global accounting enterprise for, for countries like India, Australia, Canada, Malaysia, etc., etc., is through is through a prior experience um, with the British Empire and the British Commonwealth, and um, uh, as you know, America became more 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 dominant. Um, there, there's a kind of a bridge between the uh, British Empire and the you know the British formal empire, and then the British kind of informal empire after uh, formal in- independence. Um, but also as as we have um, denser international links and as America becomes you know the dominant capitalist player, then it sort of starts to edge out the British influence to some extent but the the, the fact that you know um, the Caribbean and india and and parts of Africa were um, under the influence of British and had in other words you know that they, they were open to outside influence from the British era I think made it easier for, um, in a way, for um, uh, American influence to spread and uh, are making it easier, I think, for the um, global accountancy arena to be emerging as, as, as we speak. So going back to the book, uh, could you tell us something about the early history of the accounting profession in the settler colonies? Uh, okay, in, in, in the settler colonies, as, as the um, as the label implies, we're, we're talking about places like um, uh, Canada and Australia and uh, New Zealand. Although New Zealand isn't covered in, in, in the book of this, this edition, uh, but we could also say that places like um, Kenya, as uh, Suki Sian uh, mentions. Um, these were all places that were specifically, um, uh, what's the word, colonised or, or um, incorporated into British formal empire with the intention uh, or with the expectation or the hope that, that there would be an outflow of people from Britain, uh, you know, interpreted broadly to include, you know, Scotland and Ireland and Wales, um, to, uh, uh, that would be destinations for uh, immigrants from from uh, from Britain, and um, uh, that that is what happened. Uh, leading uh, account, leading uh, leaders of the profession in, in Canada and Australia and in parts of Africa uh, and elsewhere were were, um, were British people who moved uh, to further their careers um, when um, the. Uh, the accountancy world or the accountancy market in, in, in Britain became crowded. So one way to advance oneself as a kind of Scottish accountant, for example, might be to move move to uh, move to Canada. And if you move to Canada as a chartered accountant, uh, you know you would have certain advantages. And um, if you perceive there be to be advantages in in organising the profession locally, you would probably do it. You know, following the model of uh, a Scottish body or an English body, and um, you probably like the same kind of standards and, and ways of um, uh, 
um, ways of examining the, the, the different credentials, even um, you know the way firms would be organised and even perhaps the way one would dress. Uh, that all those kind of things would be would, would be copied from from Britain. So would you say that these people emigrated not in response to poor factors but largely push factors? So there is no like you know local demand in like let's say Canada or Australia or even South Africa for accountants, and these people just went because you know maybe they couldn't find like jobs or something in Britain. Yeah, I think both push and pull were were in operation. Um, I, I think. Um, because of the flow of, of British capital uh, throughout the empire, but also outside of formal empire, you know, for example, a lot of um, a, a lot of British capital went to the United States, of course, and to you know Argentina, and uh, you know there were periods of time when investment outside the empire was uh, more lucrative than investment in the empire, and wherever British money went you know, or British capital went. Um, British accountants would follow, and I, one suspects that there was a feeling that um, if you were a British capitalist in, in, in London, you were more likely to uh, to trust the work of a British accountant in you know in Argentina or uh, you know or Bengal or uh, or Trinidad uh, than than perhaps uh, a local accountant uh, who wouldn't have had the same kind of training or would have that same kind of allegiance to Britain that, that, that a British accountant might have. Um, and uh, I think there was, you know, there is some literature that suggests that, that there was, um, say, overcrowding in, in, in Scotland, uh, you know, too many chartered accountants than the market could bear, you know, going back to the late 19th, but also, you know, early to mid 20th century, you know, the England and Scotland are... Uh, now, I'm not so sure about Ireland, but perhaps Ireland as well, producing you know heaps and heaps of chartered accountants, and um, they're they're looking for somewhere to go. So an, an easy way out, if you like, although perhaps this wasn't as easy as one would expect from from them. You know, you often hear uh, see nostalgic uh, letters saying you know where you know the UK is referred to as home, and they talk about conditions at home and etc. etc. They talk about the home associations and the home firms. Uh, so there's that kind of strong, you know, cultural uh, allegiance. Uh, so there is a combination of push and and and, and pull, and um, it, it's also noticeable. I think that maybe uh, there there may have been less of a push factor, say, from um, London trained chartered accountants as opposed to. Uh, um, Chartered accountants trade in Edinburgh or Aberdeen or, or Dublin, but there's some speculation in that. So I'm just guessing. Yeah, that's very interesting. But uh, ultimately, it was these people who emigrated who were kind of responsible for founding local accountancy bodies. Uh, yes, many many of them were, uh, and um, even I, I suppose. Um, in, in the United States, um, they were quite heavily involved, and there is an academic called uh, uh, accounting historian called Tom, Thomas Lee, who's written a lot about that. Uh, although, unfortunately, the United States is not covered in this book. There is a, a literature that talks about uh, about the influence say, of Scottish accountants and English accountants in in uh, in the U.S. as well, of course, as Canada and other parts of the um, of of the empire. And there's 
there's a kind of a strange tension there in the sense that even, say, you know, Canadians and, and Australians who felt they were of British stock, um, once they had uh, a local qualification from, uh, even had studied for um, the local exams of a professional body um, modelled upon British bodies, and um, they might discover, for example, that um, a local subsidiary or a local branch of a large British ent enterprise um, was reluctant or unable through its constitution to employ a local, say, Australian accountant or Canadian accountant or South African accountant to take on um, the lucrative uh, audit work of, um, of doing an audit for a British company having operations in you know, South Africa or Canada or Australia when you know, being, having a British qualification excluded you from bidding for the work you know, as a Canadian or Australian, then the, this kind of set up a tension between um, local accountants and, and immigrant accountants, even though, you know, in, in a sense, they came from a similar cultural and even professional tradition. And, you know, there is a, a scholarly literature on um, nationalism in, um, in the settler colonies and elsewhere, but there is a kind of an... A, a, a nationalist accounting movement as well as a, a kind of a broader nationalist, nationalist movement in, in, in the countries in, in our book. So, you know, th there are um, um, Australian accountants and, and Canadian accountants, some of whom may even have come from Britain, you know, feeling peeved that, um, that uh, British immigrants might have some advantage over them in, uh, in the local marketplace and, and might consider themselves superior to the locals. And so you get that kind of um, uh, resentment or, or uh, chagrin, if you like, um, even when uh, there is a strong cultural bond. So you know, it's you know, it's a kind of a mixed mixed story. So this kind of interesting because what did the Institute of Chartered Accountants of England and Wales, you know, what did they think about all this? I mean, didn't they make any efforts to establish local chapters in these colonies? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, with the, um, the uh, English and Scottish um, chartered bodies, which are the ones I know most, most about, um, the ones that figure most prominent, prominently in the um, in the book, um, they they started off as you know local bodies. Uh, in Scotland, they started off as bodies located in particular cities, uh, let alone you know whole you know the whole national arena. Um, but what what drove them offshore, if you like, uh, was um, not the leadership of the professional bodies, but, but the international firms. Um, and um, there were Scottish firms and English firms and firms that included both Scots and English and Irish accountants. Um, it was then following British capital that really, were, I would say, were the drivers behind um, the setting up of training um, outside of England uh, and it was the desire of those accountants to, to set up training systems and um, credentials and, and ways of, dis of them, distinguishing themselves from 
what they saw as poor accountants in Australia, Canada, etc. It was, you know, the motivation to establish that, you know, one was better than these people that kind of pushed, um, firstly, the immigrant accountants and then the local accountants that they trained in their firms locally that kind of put pressure on, say, the English Institute and the Scottish Institutes to uh, perhaps uh, to, to, to think about uh, setting up offshore. Uh, but they never did that. Um, the, um, uh, one, one of the um, chapters in the book covers the, uh, uh, a serious attempt by the, um, the English Institute to set up its exams uh, throughout the British Empire in the 1920s, um, motivated by various things, partly um, by the desire of their members to be able to train chartered accountants locally and what you have to understand when you raise that point is that, um, of course, when you run an accounting practice, you know, your main capital is the human capital, the people who, who do the work, and they, of course, need to be trained. And um, in, the, in the British tradition, the major training was not in a university, it was, was with the firm and in doing professional exams. And um, under the rules of the English and, and, uh, and Scottish bodies in particular, uh, the only way you could become a member was to train in, in Britain. And this was a very you know, expensive exercise to go and, and spend years uh, studying in, in the UK and passing exams and, um, and uh, perhaps paying fees to be taken on as an apprentice. Uh, was very, um, it was a very forbidding exercise. Um, so, um, um, partly to overcome this problem and partly also uh, to overcome a situation, say, in South Africa um, and elsewhere where the, um, the locals um, were starting to develop um, their own examinations. Um, more importantly, that they started to work together with uh, local governments and local bureaucrats to bring about local legislation uh, that had the implied or explicit potential to shut out British accountants. Um, this was another factor that put um, say the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales to put them on edge and also put their members on edge um, that, that had offices in South Africa, Australia, Canada, etc., and uh, in the 1920s, as um, accounting nationalism became more strident, um, the, uh, the, the British accountants became more, more insistent that something be done, and the English Institute finally said, OK, let's give this go in the 1920s. Let, let's, um, let, let's try and set up um, examinations you know, throughout the empire so that our members can train chartered accountants locally. And... Um, and um, be able to uh, expand their potential labour pool. Uh, by that time, unfortunately for, for them, um, there were local bodies in place that didn't particularly want the, um, the prestigious British bodies to muscle in on their territory. So, you know, the, the Canadians and the South Africans particularly were uh, quite sort of stroppy and, you know, didn't want this to happen, and particularly the 
the South Africans. And, and um, chapter two in the book traces the kind of the, the, the politics of how basically um, the, the Canadians, uh, sorry, the South Africans, to a lesser extent, the Canadians said, no, we're not having this. You know, we, we don't want you to be running examinations here and having branches here. And um, as this coincided with the period in the uh, history of empire relations where we have a, you know, the Imperial Conference in 1926 saying that the colonies are all independent from each other and from, and from Britain and that uh, they can do what, whatever, they, you know, whatever they see fit, or whatever they like, you know, apart from things like uh, going to war and diplomacy, uh, apart from those kind of things, everyone was at liberty to do what they want. And this meant that um, the colonial office or the Secretary of State in Britain couldn't um, so easily protect the interests of British accountants. And uh, basically, to make a long story short, it was a case of um, Canadian and South African accountants leveraging this um, additional independence uh, that their local legislatures and local governments had from the Imperial Centre using that to basically um, uh, suggest to the uh, English and Scottish accountants that they needed to keep their distance and not try and, and um, intimidate the local accountants. Uh, so in, in a way, um, it, by the time um, the, the Brits tried to set up empire-wide systems of credentials, it was too late. Um, Except that the the the, uh, the story is incomplete, uh, and what we have is uh, relatively little research on the periods, say from um, let's say from um, decolonisation, the, the wave of decolonisation that took place in the 50s and 60s, where you know Africa and the Caribbean and um, uh, the relevant parts of Asia broadly defined. Um, post the post-colonial era, um, there there is a period there where even though the the, the English chartered bodies are not active in the colonies, uh, um, another body, particularly uh, uh, well in, with various variations, a body that's now nowadays called the ACCA, the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants, um, by the 1970s. Um, it, it's a British-based body, but it's also heavily promoting itself, um, in particularly in uh, uh, in the Caribbean, in uh, uh, in Africa, but also um, in the Eastern Bloc. You know, post um, post Soviet era, where we have you know local accountants who uh, want to have an international credential, and um, they, um, you know, this is gross generalisation, but you know, as a generalisation, they prefer to have an international credential uh, rather than a local credential. Uh, and uh, with the um, relative inactivity of the British chartered bodies and and the relative inactivity offshore of British and Canadian bodies, this this, this left a huge vacuum for the ACCA to. Um, set up examinations uh, outside Britain, and they're a very significant player now, um, not just in you know, the British Empire, but also, uh, as I was saying before, in, you know, in Russia, the Czech Republic, 
etc., etc. So they, that body is now an agent of accounting globalization, but its its history, you know, is is part of the history of the British Empire, and even the vacuum that it fills is a function of the empire experience. So going back to these accountancy bodies that stand up in the secular colonies, I mean, you note in the book that some of them in turn came to exercise an influence over some other colonial bodies, like I think the Malaysian accountancy body was actually influenced by New Zealand. So how did they come to assume this position? Ah, well, that's, uh, that's also a very interesting question, and um, perhaps, you know, th- th- this is an area that, that can be explored uh, with, with further research, but... Um, uh, Debbie Susala has written an interesting chapter that probably tells us as much as, as, as we can know at the moment about, about your question. But um, um, Malaysia is a place where, uh, you know, um, firstly, there were a lot of, of British trained accountants, um, or, or at least there, there were a number of influential British trained accountants you know, pre-independence who continue to be um, influential after independence. There are also uh, a small number of Malaysian accountants who um, went to study in Britain and have British qualifications. And uh, so although they're Malaysian, they tend to see themselves as um, um, a, a, as being you know, part of the accounting elite in Malaysia. And uh, you also have, you know, because... Um, Malaysia is, you know, quite close to Australia. You also have uh, Australian chartered accountants operating in Malaysia, and uh, one suspects that um, this hasn't been studied in great detail. But one suspects that there were um, British-based firms operating in, in Malaysia and elsewhere in that part of the world who also employed Australian chartered accountants. Um, so. What, what's going on in this imperial accountancy arena is that there are kind of second-order effects of, say, um, Australian accountants having an influence on Malaysia, uh, and, but also Indian professional bodies having an influence on Malaysia, and partly the, the empire connection is the um, is the connection through which they can talk to each other and and haggle and, and, and negotiate. But to uh, Answer your 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 question uh, more directly. Uh, the accounting elite in 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 Malaysia, uh, even after independence, was um, had had all these sort of British connections through um, partly part, partly through the elite being trained in Britain, partly through the idea that British is best, and, and partly through um, local legislation modelled on British legislation. That, that has rules about who can audit, um, that is, is, is modelled or, or based indirectly upon um, British legislation, um, but also New Zealand legislation that has got some kind of connection with British legislation indirectly, even though in Malaysia it's an Australian accountant who looks to New Zealand legislation to help form accounting legislation in Malaysia. So these are all kind of indirect, you know, uh, layers of influence sort of ricocheting from different parts of the empire and ending up in, in Malaysia. Um, so actually, 
apart from the apart from these influences what were the like major differences you know between the accountancy bodies in the settler colonies and those in the other colonies you know like Kenya and India and the Caribbean ah okay um in the settler settler colonies um they were um much more likely as as this pretty obvious if you think about it that they are more likely to be uh, organized by uh, british immigrants or by locals locally born people of british stock you know very familiar with with british uh, traditions and and, um, and exemplars uh, and of course you know familiarity with the uh, english language and british systems of education and access to those systems of education uh, but they are also um uh in parts of the world where um the local governments um uh, uh particularly from the 1920s on uh are are ready as um so-called self-governing colonies they they're ready to support their local accountants from the um impingement uh on the local legislative scene of the colonial office or the dominion's office or um you know the um the british chartered bodies from trying to muscle in onto the uh local scene uh so that so canada australia etc they get independence or or meaningful independence a lot earlier uh they have a uh, kind of a british cultural connection uh they are white settlers um and they can exercise their voice um more readily and um they're also um they could call themselves uh chartered accountants through through various ways and means by 1930s in places like india um the caribbean um malaysia um independence effective independence or at least formal independence comes about much later the 1950s and 60s rather than the turn of the century or the 1920s and there's also a kind of a Uh, a racial element there where um uh as uh, one of the authors um on 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 the Trinidad and Tobago chapter uh Master Anasets uh says you know in Trinidad accountancy was 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 a kind of a, a um uh, was was constructed as as a kind of a white occupation so there's and and this happens in many other places as well so um accountancy or the upper echelons of accountancy is a kind of a it's it's a segment for um immigrant accountants or the few local accountants who had the opportunity to travel to to England uh and Scotland and be trained there and come back and be form part of the local elite so uh basically the, the non-settler colonies um it took them a lot longer to establish some reasonable degree of autonomy it took them a lot longer to establish you know significant credentials you know, or or um uh prestigious credentials like chartered accountants and um and typically they they would get all of those things moving um as part of a wave of enthusiasm after formal independence where we have you know a feisty new local government that's you know sick of sick of imperialism sick of domination 
They want to open opportunities for, for the locals. They want to throw off the imperial yoke. And, um, and the period, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, 20 years straight after independence is the period when um, uh, the local accountants have their opportunity to kind of, you know, muscle into the uh, elite, elite sections of accountancy. Um, so that's why, you know, you find you know, India getting chartered accountants, um, you know, in, in the 1950s rather than the 1930s. Why we get, uh, you know, um, um, Kenyan chartered accountants, you know, in the 1960s rather than the 1920s. By Kenyan chartered accountants, I mean, you know, um, chartered accountants trained locally and, um, and you know, non-white. Uh, they might be uh, locally born, they might be have an Indian heritage or they might have a, you know, a local African Kenyan heritage. Um, so th that would be kind of major, the major differences. There's probably uh, a lot more work that could be done looking at the specifics of each country, looking at um, commonalities and differences. And you know, we hope that it might inspire uh, people you know, living in those countries or doing research into those countries to dig a little more deeply than we've been able to in, in, in this book. Um, so basically to sum up, uh, you know that uh, you know, the British influence actually, I mean you think that this might actually have been a good thing but there's still some kind of common framework and you think that would actually be useful in helping develop a global accounting standard? Uh, I, I think I, I think it will, um, partly because um, there is a long history of um, accountants in various parts of the world, and I, I would say this would apply, you know, to Britain as well. That there is a very long tradition of benchmarking myself, you know, to use a contemporary term, benchmarking myself to um, what accountants are doing elsewhere, and particularly what the elite accountants are doing. Uh, and there is also um, um, a long tradition, for example, of modelling one's examinations and one's ethical codes on uh, ideas and models that have developed outside the country. Uh, and there is also uh, 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 a resistance, in a way, to, um, to um, developing local traditions that purely focus on solving local problems. Uh, that's a kind of a strange thing to say, but uh, and, and it's not necessarily a totally good influence. But a, a number of the papers in, in uh, chapters in, in the book uh, point point out that once uh, a local um, occupational group and a local profession exists, the elite continues to service the um, the uh, the firms that represent. British capital or American capital or offshore capital. So that's the area where the, the highest expertise is, is involved and where the greatest prestige and the greatest income is to be found. So the tradition of the elite, accountancy elite, looking at it in that direction rather than looking at uh, trying to help small firms in, uh, in Nigeria, for example, 
or in Sri Lanka, in other words, solving the accounting problems of small firms that are only indirectly plugged into the uh, global economy. Um, from the point of view of those types of firms, which may employ you know a lot more people than um, than firms directly linked to British capital or American capital, uh, it could be argued that um, globalisation. Um, only has a kind of very minor sort of trickle-down effect on, on those kind of accountants. And um, you can see that, that neglect of the lower ends of, of the um, accounting spectrum and also the, the, the lower end of the economy. Um, you can see that kind of tendency clearly evident in, uh, in, in the imperial era. So the global era is a kind of continuation. And in a way, that's a problem um, that if one wants, if one believes that accountancy can develop, can aid development, um, there is the problem that uh, one can limit development to the the, uh, the big end of town rather than more broadly throughout the uh, Sri Lankan economy or the Nigerian economy. And uh, this is a problem that that you find debated when people argue about uh, whether we should have international accounting standards or not. You know, there's a feeling in some circles that maybe the international accounting standards are more for the benefit of offshore investors rather than uh, local businesses, particularly small local businesses. So this is a kind of an ongoing debate which I think will be with us for a, a, a fair while in the future. <laughs> but I think part of our contrib contribution is to suggest that this debate can be extended not just to... Um, you know, accounting standards in the sense of rules about how accounting, um, how um, income statements and balance sheets should be prepared, but they extend also to um, how should accountants be trained, what should be learned, what, what strata of society can they come from, uh, what parts of the local economy should they service, etc., etc. Um, that um, we could have a debate about. Um, the, the benefits of globalisation or standardisation in that kind of uh, occupational arena as well. Um, so, do you think your future research will focus on any of this? Uh, look, I, I think I, I, I personally would uh, definitely like to um, uh, continue working in this in this area. I think um, there, there there is a big gap in, say, uh, the period, say, just to pull a figure out of the air, from the 1950 to 1950s to the present, um, as the US becomes the dominant player um, in, in the world of capitalism, but also as we kind of start to get to develop, you know, global um, institutions, you know, like um, the United Nations, like the IMF, uh, like... Um, international bodies of accountants and international regulators and also with perhaps, you know, the American informal empire on the wane and perhaps, you know, India and, and, and China perhaps being um, more influential in the past than they have been in, in, sorry, in the future than they have been in the past and perhaps, you know, there, there is uh, room now for more give and take, uh, more a little bit more equality in constructing the global sphere uh, that this can extend to accounting as well, and um, un un understanding how um, uh, 
the, the empire era in accounting mutated into the international, into the you know the American, then the global arena and the post-American arena. That kind of history hasn't been done, and uh, I think it's um, it's that that's a kind of uh, huge research area that's way too big to be done by one person or or even the small group that have been involved in in producing this book. In other words, there's there's a lot of work that could be done uh, tracking the international connections or the the cross-border connections between accountancy in you know in, in many parts of the world. I mean, a, a particularly fascinating um, uh, arena would be like you know the, the former Soviet bloc. What's happening there is they kind of rush to plug themselves into you know the global uh, into the global capital arena, and you know not not to mention continental Europe, you know, which of course is greatly neglected and in, in, in this in this volume and uh, you know of course there are many parts of Africa that are not touched on and you know don't forget the whole of South America is not touched on um, you know the, these are kind of all areas that are are now uh, being gradually sucked into a global accountancy arena and there's a project ongoing to produce you know the global accountant well what kind of person would this person be and what Training should they have, and where would their uh, allegiances uh, lie? Would they be like globalized guys and gals, or would they be um, have an allegiance to you know, to India or um, Chile or uh, Canada or the United States or, or whatever? Um, so I think these are all interesting questions that um, a great number of people from different countries might give some thought to. Oh, that was fascinating. Um, but I'm afraid we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, so we'll have to let you go now. But um, before we do that, is there any message you have for accountants and training? Sorry, what, what was that? Uh, uh, I didn't catch well, uh, what was the last part of your question there. So, yeah, uh, is there any message you have for accountants and training? Oh, wow, that's that's a big question. Look, I... I I guess my my um, my view would be to accountants in, in training. Uh, of course, you know you one has to learn how to do accounting if one's going to be, one is going to be an accountant. But um, also be aware of of, um, of the systems under which you know your your training is is devised and. Uh, the kind of work you're doing and where you will work and who you will work for, you know, they all have um, a history, and um, that that history is um, partly an imperial history, and and, and it's likely to be um, an offshore history. In other words, the, the way you do accounting is unlikely to be uh, determined just in the place where you live. It's probably going to come from somewhere else. And uh, you might think about that, and you might think also about when you do your accounting work, um, who is going to benefit? You know, is it just um, just your firm or um, the um, the people who work in the country where you live or where you work, or is there a kind of a, a, a also a global arena that's going to be affected by your work? And uh, and uh, you might have that at the back of your mind as well. You know, you're going to be part of a um, of uh, an international occupation and, and, and an international or global network of experts who are um, 
who, who are doing uh, work that affects uh, people all over the globe. And you might sort of keep that in mind when you're making your, um, your uh, professional judgments. Well, uh, thanks very much. Uh, thank you for doing this for the New Books Network. And it was a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, pleasure, Dara. Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to uh, talk to you and, um, and uh, anyone who might be interested online. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Fox, a very interesting insight into a profession often regarded as being all about numbers. But as we have seen, chartered accountants and accountancy are organically linked to wider debates about nationhood and identity. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.